Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, we've been walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Um, basically answering the question of what does it actually look like to live like a Christian. And we've been in it for a number of months now, and we've kind of been back and forth. We had Christmas and uh, the holidays here, and so uh, we've been back in 1 Corinthians. And a few weeks ago, Adam jumped into 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and uh, taught on this theme of Christian liberty. And I would highly encourage you guys, if you've missed a few weeks or you weren't here specifically when Adam taught on 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to revisit our podcast. You guys can uh, catch up there and listen to his teaching. And the reason why I say this, maybe you were here, maybe you did listen to it. I would still encourage you to listen to it again because it was a really good teaching. Um, But 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10, and even the first verse of chapter 11, all are uh, are kind of... um, focused in on this one singular thought. Um, They they revolve around this theme, um, and that theme is Paul's answer to the Corinthian church that they initially asked about whether or not they should eat meat or eat food sacrificed to idols. And so 8, 9, 10, and again, the first verse of 11, uh, all kind of center around this theme. And so... Adam laid the framework, he laid the groundwork for that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he taught on that two weeks ago. And so um, I I just think it's very interesting. I think it's helpful to look at it as a whole because it would be tempting to look at a few of these verses here, pull them out of the context of the greater narrative that Paul is talking about, and it would be easy for us to get off base. It would be easy for us to wind up somewhere Paul never intended for us to be. But with that framework, with that mentality, we're going to dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. You see, the Corinthian church were asking Paul the apostle questions. And they asked this particular question in regards to meat being sacrificed to idols on whether or not they could eat it, whether or not it was kosher, because they knew idols really weren't a thing. There really wasn't something weird there. They had this freedom in Christ, and they wanted to know hey, Paul, what's the deal on this? And what they wanted Paul to do was to outline exactly what rights they had as Christians in regard to their conduct. They wanted Paul to just lay it out for them and tell them what they could and couldn't do because they wanted, it, they wanted something black and white, something definitive here. But Paul uses this question and he drives home this really important principle that it's not so much about what rights we have what privileges um, or justifications we might have that are legitimate, that we might legitimately be entitled to in Christ, but more about our willingness to model Jesus in laying them aside for the sake of the gospel. He, he highlights and he drives us home that uh, are we willing to sacrifice our privileges and our preferences for the sake of someone else having the opportunity to know Jesus? That's the overarching theme of these chapters. That's what Paul is really trying to drive home. And it got me thinking about this idea of sacrificing our preferences, sacrificing 
our, our entitlement, sacrificing those things that were legitimately uh, entrusted with as, as maybe a Christian right or liberty, are we willing to sacrifice them? You see, sacrifice is this interesting concept in regards to worship. It's an aspect of worship that dates all the way back to Genesis. Um, we see it throughout the Old Testament. And there, there were certain requirements for a sacrifice. There were certain, there were certain things that, that, needed to be made, uh, that needed to be met. Uh, right? An animal was to be without blemish. It was supposed to be a, a healthy specimen that was sacrificed to the Lord as an act of worship. There's, there's different things. We're not, getting necessarily, we're not necessarily talking about sacrifice as atonement for sin. I'm talking about sacrifice as worship. Um, but for it to be a legitimate sacrifice, it was supposed to be the best and the first, not the leftover or the maligned. It was supposed to be something bountiful, something that was good. And I think sometimes in our in our culture, we, we misconstrue what a sacrifice as an act of worship actually is. I want to read Romans chapter 12. Paul the Apostle would write here to the Roman church, <coughs> just in verses 1 and 2. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as I'm thinking about this, as I'm thinking about sacrifice, um, I need you to understand there's some things that we give up when we come to Jesus. There are some things that we relinquish um, because they're sinful, because they're wrong, um, because he changes us, because they're not good for us. You know, I think about the drugs, promiscuity, uh, drunkenness, revelry, all these different things. We, we give these things up because they're things that we used to do because we didn't know Jesus. But giving to Jesus what shouldn't be in our lives in the first place is not the same thing as a sacrifice of worship. So just, just because it might be difficult for us to give up a bag of drugs. I'm not saying that that's not hard. I'm not saying that that's not difficult. I'm not saying that it's not worth something, but that's not the same thing as a sacrifice because most of the time, sacrifice in the scriptures, when we're looking at it as an act of worship was something of value and something of worth and something that was legitimately good, that was willingly sacrificed as an act of worship, not something that wasn't supposed to be in someone's life in the first place. I say this because I remember having this striking conversation with a young man when I was a, a youth pastor, and he was telling me about how he was sacrificing giving up having sex with his girlfriend before they were married, and how it was such a, such a hard thing to sacrifice, and really having to walk him through that was like, well, no, that, that shouldn't be in your life in the first place. That's, it's a good thing. We want to encourage that. We want to applaud that. God sees that. He'll honor that. He'll bless that. But that's not really a good definition of a sacrifice, if that makes sense. And it reminds me of the story of David on the threshing floor of Orna in 2 Samuel. I want to read this story here because I think it illustrates this principle perfectly. But I'm going to read in 2 Samuel 24, verses 18 through 25. It says this, On that day, 
Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Orna looked and saw that the king and his officials coming down towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Orna said, why, my Lord, has the king come to visit his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Uh, tidbit of information here, this uh, plague upon the people is kind of David's fault. Um, <laughs> but he's coming to build an altar um, so that this plague might be stopped. And Orna says to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Orna gives all this to the king. Orna also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. Right? He says, hey, this is the king. He's coming to make a sacrifice to the Lord. I'm just going to give him all this stuff because he's the king. Um, but the king replies to Orna and says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord and there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. I only mention this as an illustration because I believe that there are aspects of the Christian life where we are to live sacrificially that uh, I believe the Lord wants to receive from us sacrifice. <laughs> I believe that there are things that the Holy Spirit might impress upon our heart for us to offer up before the Lord and to give to him as a willing sacrifice, not as a demand, uh, not, as a, not as some kind of just utter requirement for our salvation, but I do believe that there are things and there are, there are aspects of our lives that we willingly surrender for the sake of Jesus. And they're not inherently sinful. They're not inherently bad. You know, Adam was talking about Christian liberty last week. He uh, he was talking about alcohol, and then he was talking about social media, and he was talking about these different things. I think for a lot of people, and this isn't a, a legalistic message here, this isn't, uh, you know, Pastor Nate thinks you should do this or you shouldn't do this, but the reality is there are things in our lives that are maybe necessarily not sinful that are still worth giving to the Lord if it means that the gospel of Christ might go forth as a result. Does that make sense? And so I wanted this to weigh in our minds as we jump into chapter 9 because Paul, I believe, is making a case to live sacrificially in order for the gospel to be advanced. You see, he began in chapter 8 with talking about meat sacrificed to idols, and then he chooses in chapter 9 to illustrate that same theme with his life as an apostle and his rights, his personal rights, as he would describe them as an apostle. He'd go on in verse 1. I'm going to read this here. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? These are rhetorical questions. He is free. He is an apostle. He has seen Jesus our Lord. And he goes on. He says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? He's, he's laying some personal claim here to the Corinthian church. He said, you are my handiwork. You're, you're my work in the Lord. And he says, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends to a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. He goes on in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these gifts, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I, that in preaching the gospel, gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Now this is interesting, right? Paul was just talking about meat sacrificed to idols and he comes here and looks at these personal rights that he has. And it, it's, it's pretty fascinating here because he's demonstrating that he has every wife, every right to take a wife, to raise a family, to earn a salary like the other apostles. We get some great insight here just from the language that Paul uses where we look into the lives of the other apostles where uh, historically we're, they're believed to all have been married, many of them with children um, outside of Barnabas here. We see, we see just interesting claim to that. We see them as families and we see them making and earning a salary um, from the gospel being supported by the ministry. And so Paul isn't using this as some kind of claim of greater spirituality. He's not kind of trying to lay uh, lay claim here and says, hey, I'm more spiritual than all these guys. I'm better than all these guys. He spends the first kind of couple chapters of 1 Corinthians dispelling those kind of notions. And he doesn't see anything wrong with leaders in the church being supported by the ministry. He makes that pretty abundantly clear. He even gives us insight into the lives of the other apostles um, who make their living as ministers of the gospel. What Paul is doing here is he's living as an exception, not as a rule. And he's willing to lay aside legitimate rights, scriptural rights, even, even in the place where it says the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel that they should receive they're living from the gospel. He lays aside this clearly defined right so that the Corinthians might better receive the message of Jesus. This was what was at the forefront of Paul's mind in his mission was that uh, the gospel would go forth and that it would go forth unhindered. 
And so you may be entitled to certain Christian liberties. But would you be willing to forsake those if it meant someone might come to Christ as a result? He's got this evangelistic mindset that Paul is living with. And he'll go on later to challenge us um, to have the same kind of mindset, to live in the same way, to live with the same mentality. Paul would invite us to live sacrificially that the gospel of Christ might go forth. That's how he actually ends this, it culminates this whole kind of teaching on the subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, verse 1, it says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, Paul is asking us to model Jesus by laying aside our rights, by laying aside our privileges, by laying aside our preferences um, in order that others might come to know Christ. You see, he wants to see as many as possible come to know Jesus and he's willing to do anything short of sin to make that happen. We pick up the narrative, we pick up the, the text here in verse 19. He goes on and he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like the one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified from the prize. And I think what, what embodies, uh, I think if there was a word that embodies Paul's mentality here in regards to the gospel of Jesus, regards to evangelism, it's intentionality. He's living every waking moment He's making every conscious decision about who he is, about what he does or what he doesn't do intentionally with the gospel in mind and how people might respond to the gospel. You see, this isn't a passage about Paul's personal freedom. That's not the main point of the passage here about what Paul is free to do or free not to do. I think sometimes people kind of get misconstrued there. I think the main end view is the salvation of others. That is the main point of this passage. That is Paul's main goal. This is a passage um, that has actually been grossly taken out of context um, at times as a means to justify actions under the guise of evangelism. And so uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, is anybody here familiar with the Children of God cult from the 70s and the 80s? Anybody, I think they call it the family initiative now, um, but it was kind of this, it was, it was kind of under the guise of Christendom, 
um, came out of uh, the counterculture movement in the 60s, um, in the early 70s, and it was, it, was a, it was basically a hippie cult for Jesus, if you will, but it masqueraded as a church, it masqueraded as a ministry for a while, but they had some wild interpretations of this verse that blew my mind. Um, and uh, this is kind of a far-reaching example, but um, they once actually promoted the concept of flirty fishing is what they described it as. There was, they, had, uh, they had pamphlets for this um, that they would pass out as training material. And uh, during the 70s and 80s, they were teaching that women could essentially, and th this is on their, this is like in their teaching materials that they could be prostitutes for Jesus um, in the way that they would go and sleep with men in order to bring them into part of their cult, into part of their fellowship, um, which is just, it's bonkers. And they would use this verse to justify becoming all things to all men for the sake of reaching some. Wild, right? I need you to understand that is not what Paul is saying here. That's a gross stretch. That's an exaggerated stretch. But I have seen similar sentiment. I have heard people say similar things about, well, I just smoke weed with my friends because I want to become, I want to do all things with I want to be all things to all people so that I can reach him for Jesus. Or I go to the bar with my friends and I might get plastered once in a while, but it's just in the sake of evangelism. And, and there's this mentality that exists that is just crazy. You know, that church, I, I put that in quotation marks, that the cults there, they didn't, they didn't uh, suspend that practice until there was a massive outbreak of AIDS within their fellowship. Um, and in fact, one of the, one of the kind of uh, statistics that I, I pulled was there, there's an estimated 10,000 children that were born to women within this movement between 1971 and 2001 as a result of this outreach ministry. It's wild. And so to be clear, Paul is not advocating any such idea here. He's not advocating that he would start stealing stuff so he could better relate to thieves, right? We, we understand that. He's not, he's not saying, you know what, I'm going to become a male prostitute so I can better engage with the men's group. He's not murdering people so he has some clout and has something to relate to the guys in prison with, right? This is not the mentality that Paul is stating here. And I think we know that, but sometimes it can get taken out of context. I need you to understand this. Jesus never sinned in order to reach sinners. And God is never going to ask of you or put you in a place to compromise your relationship with him for the sake of cultural relevance. And that is something that I, I need you to understand. We want to be evangelically, evangelistically minded, right? We want to have clear intention about reaching people in the darkest of dark places. But God is never going to ask you to sin in order to reach a sinner. And that is some, there's somewhere where the American church has made a disconnect that in the name of relevance, we have thrown out holiness. We have thrown out the standard of righteousness that God has called us to. And we have to, rem we have to remember, 
we don't actually see people's lives change by living exactly the same way as them. I have, a, I have a number of quotes that I really wanted to read. I, I was actually just looking for one quote this morning because Adam shared it with me. And I wanted to, I thought it was really good. And I wanted to read it in context and it wound up being really good. So I added it to my message here. But then I, I, I got on a rabbit hole. So this, these might be the most quotes that I've ever had in a Sunday morning. Um, that I think Adam sat back there, typed all of them out by hand. So thank you, Adam. <laughs> Should have emailed them to you. But Marion Sword said this, that the gospel is not relativized to worldly social conditions that are no more than, than contemporary social structures and sensibilities. Rather, the apostle himself becomes relativized in order to preserve the integrity of the gospel, meaning that it's not the message that changes, but the messenger adapts. David Garland put it this way. He says, his accommodation has nothing to do with watering down the gospel message. Soft peddling its ethical demands or compromising its absolute monotheism. Paul never modified the message of Christ crucified to make it less of a scandal to Jews or less foolish to Greeks. The preacher of the changeless gospel could adapt himself. However, the changing audiences in seeking their ultimate welfare, their salvation. <coughs> and then N.T. Wright said this, This statement has sometimes been understood as though it meant that Paul was a mere pragmatic, a, a pragmatist, a spin doctor, twisting his message this way and that to suit different audiences. That's not what he is saying. The message remains constant. It is the messenger who must, who, much, who must swallow his pride, who must give up his rights, who must change his freedom into slavery. Woe betide those who trim the message so that they don't have to trim themselves. The last one is Thomas Schreiner. He says this, Believers have rights, but those rights are always to be exercised in love so that Christians live for the benefit and salvation of others. The pattern of a believer's life is to be cruciform, which means sacrificing one's preferred way of life for the benefit and good of others. Verses 19 through 22 play a vital role in discussions about contextualization. Cultural adaptation so that others may find salvation follows Paul's footsteps. Christians must not impose their own cultural patterns on other cultures which are being won for the gospel. Cultural flexibility, however, is not infinitely elastic. For instance, Paul does not compromise on moral norms or on fundamental truths of the gospel. I thought all of these were very insightful and helpful kind of uh, um, commentaries on these passages of scripture here. But if I had to summarize it, if I had to kind of just boil it down or condense it, I would say this, the way that we preach the gospel, the method that we use will differ based upon our cultural context, but the message can never change. The method will look different from one day to the next, but the message can never change, and that is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like us.
chapter 9 here highlights something for me that I really want to grip us as a people, to grip us as a church. And that was that Paul lived his life with intentionality as an evangelist. And as I'm reading these passages, as I'm reading chapter 8, as I'm reading chapter 9, as I'm preparing a message for chapter 10, I see at the forefront of this a genuine desire of Paul is to make Jesus known, is that he just wants people to know Jesus by any means necessary. And he recognizes that this doesn't happen accidentally. He's looking for every opportunity to make Christ known. He's living his life in such a way, making significant sacrifices for the sake of the cross. For us, it's probably not eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's it's probably much simpler than that for a lot of us, but we might have to deal with what we drink or what we don't, the places we go, the places that we don't go, what may or may not serve as our entertainment. They, these are things that I can't just kind of give you a list of what it is or why it's that on a Sunday morning and somehow kind of implement some kind of legalism into you in order for you to figure it out. Because that's what the Corinthians wanted Paul to do. They wanted Paul to just hey, write it out for us, black and white, and tell us if we can or we can't do this. And Paul's saying it's a bigger picture than that. It's it's bigger than that. It's not just about doing something or not doing something. The matter behind the why is really important as well. And he asks the question, are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to lay aside maybe some legitimate rights if it means that the gospel might go forth, that you might win some? Is there a willingness there to set it aside? It requires us to live intentionally sensitive, first and primarily to the Holy Spirit, but also to the culture around us. I love that Paul wasn't entirely disconnected from society and culture. He wasn't completely removed in some kind of monastic bubble where he was just praying, you know, 23 hours a day, and then he'd get out and do ministry every once in a while. He was in people's lives. He understood Greek culture. He understood Jewish culture. He understood the culture that he was ministering to and that he was involved in. I think he was a a pretty strong example of that Christianese saying that we have of being in the world but not of it. You guys know that that language, right? Maybe you've been familiar with it, in the world or not of it. Uh, When I was a teenager, there was a popular clothing brand called Not of This World, N-O-T-W, I don't know if any, anybody uh, is familiar with that clothing line at all. I think they might still exist. I don't know if they do or not. But uh, that, was, that, was, that was your pastor's claim to fame as a teenager, was I worked as a graphic designer for Not of This World for a few years and sold some t-shirts from them. They were really bad. They were really cringy. <laughs> and I would definitely not wear probably any of them today. <laughs> But as a high school kid, I thought that was so cool, you know? You go to a store, and there's a T-shirt that I designed, and it was like, yeah, woo-woo. Um, anyway, they were bad, guys. They, and they wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to buy them today. They, they would 100% be canceled. I had, I had designed a shirt that was not of this world, and it looked like a suicide bomber. It had, it had dynamite strapped to the chest, 
and it said prayer, terrorism on hell. Uh, and I thought that was like edgy and that was cool. And they sold it in Christian bookstores. I made like $7 on that shirt. I, for some reason, I just don't think that they would probably be able to get away with that uh, today. Um, yeah, for good reason. It was a, they shouldn't let teenagers, <laughs> this wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like, it, it sounded like a good idea. It sounded like a good edgy idea. Nobody had the wisdom or the foresight to tell Nate, like, it's probably just not, not, that's not being all things to all people. <laughs> that, that was, uh, anyway. Where, where was I going with this? this? This language of not of this world, right? Uh, it actually comes out of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 where he's praying for his disciples and he's talking about them still being in the world and understanding that um, we're not of this world, but we're in it. Um, and it's important to understand that like, we, we still have work to be done, right? Uh, there, there is a real world to save, and we live in it. <laughs> and it's a privilege. And it's a, I, I think it's a great gift for us to be living in the culture and the place that we're living right now. And I don't necessarily view it as this kind of horrific, just terrible thing that we've been thrown into because we have the Holy Spirit. And I look at it as great opportunity for the redemptive work of mankind to do something magnificent. And I think that's what Paul did. I think he was looking... And he was living in a cultural moment. He was living uh, in different worlds. He was living in a Jewish world and he was living in a Greek world. And he was wrestling between the two, recognizing that he doesn't really have identity in either one anymore. He's got this identity that's found in Christ. But he's willing to do whatever it takes that the gospel might find a foothold. You know, he was, he was having Timothy be circumcised <laughs> so that... They could preach the gospel. And it was something that he recognized that this isn't, a, this isn't something you need to be doing. He actually tells people, don't do this. But he's willing to subject himself to things that were seemingly ridiculous, nothing that was a requirement. But he was willing to sacrifice because he wanted the gospel to go forth in any and every circumstance. And what I love about Paul is that he's intentional about it. Evangelism wasn't just something that happened accidentally in his life, but he was making conscious decision about what he was doing, about what he was saying, about where he was going and what he was doing so that the gospel wouldn't, ha that the gospel wouldn't be hindered in any capacity. And uh, I think Paul understood something, that the gospel message is offensive enough. It didn't need our human offense on top of it or our personality or our kind of different take on things to make it more difficult. <laughs> in its very essence, in its very nature, the gospel is offensive to our flesh. It's offensive to humanity. <laughs> and I think Paul understood that that was enough. But I mentioned that he was sensitive he was sensitive to the culture around him, but primarily he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And for us to, to look at chapter 9 here and for us to have some kind of takeaway, it's requiring us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to listen to him on what it is that he might ask for us to, 
sacrifice, if you will, in order for the gospel to go forth. Because I don't think it's the same for every single person. I don't think it's going to look uh, uniformly similar for every single person. But I do think that there are Christian rights or Christian liberties that we might have that might be entirely justified. It might be completely okay that the Lord might not ask, might ask us not to do or not to go. As, as an opportunity for the gospel to be advanced. I use this as an example. And, you know, we've talked about alcohol quite a bit. And, um, you know, Adam and I, we don't drink. We don't, uh, we don't think that you can say that drinking is a sin or anything like that. Um, in fact, most of my friends do. And there's not, uh, there's not something that I would like put out as a blatant, blatant statement in any capacity. In fact, many of our pastor friends uh, hold different views than us on this. And um, what I do know is that my opportunity to be a witness to a number of people has been positively impacted because I do not drink. And... Um, I know I couldn't say the same with the same people that God has me involved with is if I did drink. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but those are one of those things that I feel like the Lord has asked me to give up, a sacrifice, something that isn't necessarily a, a, a thing that, you know, it, it, it's got no bearing upon my salvation with God, I don't believe. I think it's something that we could talk about Christian liberty, but a willingness to give something up if it means that I might be able to minister to someone as a result and see the gospel go forth as a result, I think it's a, it's a no-brainer. And I'm using that because that's an easy example. And one of the things that I think Paul does very intentionally here is he's not trying to um, claim any kind of superior spirituality or attribute that to anybody based upon <laughs> what they do or they don't do. I think the heart behind it is, are you willing to give up in order that the gospel might go forth? And so I wanted to end with this because I thought this quote really kind of, um, uh, really kind of helped bring things into um, perspective. And it was by D. A. Carson. He wrote this in like 1930, but he says this: "The person who lives by endless rules and who forms his or her self identity." By conforming to them simply cannot flex at all. By contrast, the person without roots, heritage, self-identity, and non-negotiable values is not really flexing, but is simply being driven hither and yon by the vagaries of every whimsical opinion that passes by. Such people may fit in, but they cannot win anyone. They hold to nothing stable or solid enough to win others to it. Thus, the end of Paul's statement in verse 22 is critical. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And I think what the call here that D.A. Carson makes is to be flexible, but live convicted. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.